0: section six of beacon lights of history volume eight great rulers by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand henry of navarre part two in former lectures i have passed rapidly and imperfectly over this awful crime not wishing to stimulate passions which should be buried and thinking it was more the fault of the age than of catholic bigots but i now present it in its naked deformity to be true to history and to show how cruel is religious intolerance confirmed by the history of other inhumanities in the catholic church by the persecution of dominican monks by the slaughter of the Albigenses, by inquisitions gunpowder plots the cruelties of alva and that trail of blood which has marked the fairest portions of europe by the hostilities of which the church of born in its struggles to suppress protestant opinions i mention it to recall the fact that protestantism has never been stained by such a crime i mention it to invoke gratitude that such a misguided zeal has passed away and is never likely to return catholic historians do not pretend to deny the horrid facts but ascribe the massacre to political animosities rather than religious a lame and impotent defense of their persecuting church in the sixteenth century but this atrocity had such a demoniacal blackness and perfidy about it that it filled the whole protestant world with grief and indignation especially england and had only the effect of binding together the huguenots in a solid phalanx of warriors resolved on making no peace with their perfidious enemies until their religious liberties were guaranteed though decimated they were not destroyed for the provincial governors and rural magistrates generally refused to execute the royal decrees their hearts were moved with pity the slaughter was not universal and henry himself had escaped his life being spared on condition of his becoming a catholic which as a matter of form he did nevertheless all protestant eyes were now directed to him as their leader since coligny had perished by daggers and conde on the field of battle henry was still a young man only twenty years of age but able intrepid and wise he and his cousin the younger conde were still held as hostages while the huguenots again rallied and retired to their strong fortress of la rochelle their last hopes centered in this fortress defended by only fifteen thousand men under the brave Lannone, while the royal army embraced the flower of the French nobility, commanded by the Dukes of Anjou and Alencon. But these royal dukes were compelled to raise the siege, 1573, with a loss of 40,000 men. I regard the successful defense of this fortress, at this crisis, as the most fortunate event in the whole Huguenot contest, since it enabled the Huguenots to make a stand against the whole power of the monarchs it did not give them victory but gave them a place to rally and it proclaimed the fact that the contest would not end until the protestants had achieved their liberties or were utterly annihilated soon after this successful and glorious defense of la rochelle charles the ninth died at the age of twenty-four in awful agonies the victim of remorse and partial insanity in the hours of which the horrors of st bartholomew were ever present to his excited imagination and when he beheld wild faces of demons and murdered huguenots rejoicing in his torments and heard strange voices consigning his name to infamy and his body to those never-ending physical torments in which both catholics and protestants equally believed his mother, however, remained cold, inflexible, and unmoved, for when a woman falls under the grip of the devil, then no man can equal her in shamelessness and reckless sin. Charles Ninth was succeeded in 1574 by his brother, the King of Poland, under the name of Henry Third, who was equally under the control of his mother, Catherine. Two years afterward, the King of Navarre succeeded in making his escape, and joined the Huguenot army at Tours. He was now twenty-three he astonished the whole kingdom by his courage and intrepidity winning the hearts of the soldiers and uniting them by strict military discipline his friend and counsellor was rosnay afterwards duke of sully to whose wise counsels his future success may be in a great measure traced fortunately it is the prince who will listen to the frank and disagreeable advice and that was one of the virtues of henry a magnanimity which has seldom been equalled by generals the huguenots were now able to make a stand in the open country partly from additions to their numbers and partly from the mistakes and frivolities of henry the third who alienated stern catholics and his best friends it was then that bouillon father of the illustrious turenne joined the standard of henry of navarre soon after this henry became heir apparent of the french throne by the death of the duke of alencon Only the king Henry v, a man without children and the last of the male line of the house of Valois, stood between Henry of Navarre and the throne. The possibility that he, a protestant, might wield the sceptre of st Louis, his ancestor, increased the bitterness and animosity of the Catholics. All the forces which the government could raise were now arrayed against him and his party. The pope, Sixtus v, in a papal bull took away his hereditary rights, but fortune favored him the duke of guise who aspired to the throne was himself assassinated as his father had been and now by the orders of his jealous sovereign his brother the cardinal of guise nephew of the cardinal of lorraine a man who held three archbishoprics six bishoprics and five abbeys and these the richest in the kingdom shared the same fate and providence removed also soon after the most guilty and wicked of all the perpetrators of the massacre of saint bartholomew even Catherine de' Medici, who would be regarded as a female monster, an incarnate fiend, a Messalina, or a Fredegunda, had she not been beautiful, with pleasing and gracious manners, a great fondness for society and music, and poetry and art, the most accomplished woman of her day, and so attractive as to be compared by the poets of her court to Aurora and Venus. Her life only shows how much heartlessness, cruelty, malignity, envy, and selfishness may be concealed by the mask of beauty and agreeable manners and artistic accomplishments. The bloody Battle of Coutras enabled Henry of Navarre to take a stand against the Catholics. But after the death of Henry III by assassination in 1589, his struggles for the next five years were more to secure his hereditary rights as King of France than to lead the Huguenots in victory as a religious body. It might have been better for him had Henry remained the head of their party rather than become king of France, since he might not have afterwards deserted them. But there was really no hope of the Huguenots gaining a special ascendancy at any time. They composed but a third part of the nation. Their only hope was to secure their religious liberties. The most brilliant part of the military career of Henry the Fourth was when he struggled for his throne, supported, of course, by the Huguenots, and opposed by the whole Catholic Party, the King of Spain, and the Pope of Rome the catholics or the leaguers as they were called were led by the duke of mayenne i need not describe the successes of henry until the battle of ivry march fourteenth fifteen ninety made him really the monarch of france on that eventful day both armies having performed their devotions were drawn out for action both armies knew that this battle would be decisive and when all the arrangements were completed henry completely covered with mail except his hands and head mounted upon a great bay charger galloped up and down the ranks giving words of encouragement to his soldiers and assuring them that he would either conquer or die if my standard fail you said he keep my plume in sight you will always see it in the face of glory and honor so saying he put on his helmet adorned with three white plumes gave the order of battle and sword in hand led the charge against the enemy for some time the issue of the conflict was doubtful for the forces were about equal but at length victory inclined to the protestants who broke forth in shouts as henry covered with dust and blood appeared at the head of the pursuing squadrons now god be praised the day is ours mayenne hath turned his rein. dumal hath cried for quarter the flemish count is slain the ranks are breaking like thin clouds before a biscay gale the field is heaped with bleeding steeds and flags and cloven mail and then we thought on vengeance and all along our van remember saint bartholomew was passed from man to man but out spake gentle henry then no frenchman is my foe down down with every foreigner but let your brethren go oh was there ever such a knight in friendship or in war as our sovereign lord king henry the soldier of navarre the battle of ivory in which the forces of the league met with a complete overthrow was followed by the siege of paris its memorable defense, and the arrival of the Duke of Parma, which compelled Henry to retire. Though he had gained a great victory and received great accessions, he had to struggle four years longer, so determined were the Catholics, and he might have had to fight a still longer time for his throne had he not taken the extraordinary resolution of abjuring his religion and cause. His final success was not doubtful, even as a Protestant king, since his title was undisputed, but he wearied of war the peace of the kingdom and the security of the throne seemed to him a greater good than the triumph of the huguenots in that age great power was given to princes he doubtless could have reigned as a protestant prince had he persevered for a few years longer and protestantism would have been the established religion of france as it was of england under elizabeth henry as a protestant king would have had no more enemies or difficulties or embarrassments than had the virgin queen who on her accession found only one bishop willing to crown her He had all the prestige of a conqueror and was personally beloved, besides being a man of ability. His prime minister, Sully, was as able a man as Burleigh, and as good a Protestant, and the nation was enthusiastic. The Huguenots had deeper convictions and were more logical in their creed than the English Episcopalians. Leagued with England and Holland and Germany, France could have defied other Catholic powers and could have been more powerful politically. Protestantism would have had the ascendancy in Europe but it was not to be to the mind of the king he had nothing before him but protracted war unless he became a catholic and as all the huguenots ever struggled for was religious toleration he would as king grant this toleration and satisfy all parties he either had no deep religious convictions like coligny and dandolo or he preferred an undisturbed crown to the ascendancy of the religion for which he had so bravely fought what matter the tempter said whether he reigned as a catholic or protestant monarch so long as religious liberty was given to his subjects could he have reigned for ever could he have been assured of the toleration of his successors this plea might have had some force but it was the dictate of expediency and no man can predict its ultimate results he was not a religious man though he was the leader of the protestant party he was far from being even moral in his social relations still less had he the austerity of manners and habits that then characterized the huguenots for they were calvinists and presbyterians he was gallant brave generous magnanimous and patriotic the model of a gentleman the impersonation of chivalry the charm of his friends the idol of his army the glory of his country but there his virtues stopped he was more of a statesman than the leader of a party He wanted to see France united and happy and prosperous more than he wanted to see the ascendancy of the Huguenots. He was now not the king of Navarre, a small country, scarcely thirty miles long, but the king of France, ruling as he aspired from the Pyrenees to the Rhine. So it is not strange that he was governed by the principles of expediency, as most monarchs are. He wished to aggrandize his monarchy. That aim was dearer to him than the Reformed faith coligny would have fought to the bitter end to secure the triumph of the protestant cause but henry was not so lofty a man as the admiral he had not his religious convictions or stern virtues or incorruptible life he was a gallant monarch an able general a far-reaching statesman yet fond of pleasure and of the glories of a court so henry made up his mind to abjure his faith on sunday the twenty fifth of july fifteen ninety three clad not in helmet and cuirass and burnished steel as at ivory but in a doublet of white satin and a velvet coat ornamented with jewels and orders and golden fleur-de-lis and followed by cardinals and bishops and nobles he entered the venerable abbey of saint Denis, where reposed the ashes of all his predecessors from dagobert to henry the third and was received into the bosom of the catholic church a solemn te deum was then chanted by an unnumbered priests and the lofty pillars the marble altars the storied effigies the purple windows and the vaulted roof of that medieval monument re-echoed to the music of those glorious anthems which were sung ages before the most sainted of the kings of france was buried in the crypt the partisans of the catholic faith rejoiced that a heretic had returned to the fold of true believers while the saddened disappointed humiliated members of the reformed religion felt and confessed with shame that their lauded protector had committed the most lamentable act of apostasy since the emperor julian abjured christianity it is true they palliated his conduct and remained faithful to his standard but they felt he had committed a great blunder if it were not a great crime they knew that their cause was lost lost by him who had been their leader truly they could say put not your trust in princes to the irreligious but worldly wise henry had made a grand stroke of policy had gained a kingdom well worth a mass had settled the disorders of forty years had united both catholics and protestants in fealty to his crown and was left at leisure to develop the resources of the nation and lay a foundation for its future greatness i cannot here enumerate henry the Fourth's services to france after the long civil war had closed they were very great and endeared him to the nation he proved himself a wise and beneficent ruler With the aid of the transcendent abilities of sully whose counsels he respected he reduced taxation founded schools and libraries built hospitals dug canals repaired fortifications restrained military license punished turbulence and crime introduced useful manufactures encouraged industry patronized learning and sought to perpetuate peace he aimed to be the father of his people and he was the protector of the poor his memorable saying is still dear to the hearts of frenchmen i hope so to manage my kingdom that the poorest subject of it may eat meat every day in the week and moreover be enabled to put a fowl into the pot every sunday i should like to point out his great acts in his enlightened policy especially his effort to create a balance of power in europe the settlement of the finances and the establishment of various industries were his most beneficial acts the taxes were reduced one-half and at his death he had fifty millions in the treasury a great sum in those days having paid off a debt of three hundred millions in eight years these and other public services showed his humane nature and his enlightened mind until after a glorious reign of twenty-one years he was cut off in the prime of his life and in the midst of his usefulness by the assassin's dagger may sixteen ten in the fifty-eighth year of his age the greatest of all the french kings leaving five children by his second wife marie de medici four of whom became kings or queens but to consider particularly henry's connection with the huguenots if he deserted their ranks he did not forget them he gave them religious toleration all they originally claimed in fifteen ninety eight was signed the memorable edict of nantes by which the protestants preserved their churches their schools their consistories and their synods and they retained as a guarantee several important cities and fortresses sort of imperium in imperio They were made eligible to all offices. They were not subjected to any grievous test act. They enjoyed social and political equality as well as unrestricted religious liberty, except in certain cities. They gained more than the Puritans did in the reign of Charles II. They were not excluded from universities, nor degraded in their social rank, nor annoyed by unjust burial laws. The two religions were placed equally under the protection of the government. By this edict the Huguenots gained all that they struggled for still the abjuration of henry the fourth was a great calamity to them they lost their prestige they were in a minority they could count no longer on the leadership of princes they were deprived gradually of the countenance of powerful nobles and all the potent influences of fashion and when a reaction against calvinism took place in the seventeenth century the huguenots had dwindled to a comparatively humble body of unimportant people they lost heart and men of rank to defend them when the persecution of richelieu overtook them in the next reign they were then unfit to contend successfully with that centralized monarchy of which henry the fourth had laid the foundation and which richelieu cemented by fraud and force louis the fourteenth educated by the jesuits and always under their influence repealed the charter which henry the fourth had given them the persecution they suffered under louis the fourteenth was more dreadful than they suffered under charles the ninth since they had neither arms nor organization nor leaders nor fortresses under the persecution of the Valois princes they had Condé and the King of Navarre and Coligny for leaders. They were strong enough to fight for their liberties. They had enthusiasm and prestige and hope. Under the iron and centralized government of Louis the Fourteenth, they were completely defenseless, like lambs before wolves. They had no hopes, they could make no defense, they were an obnoxious, slandered, unimportant, unfashionable people, and their light had gone out. They had no religious enthusiasm, even they were small farmers and tradesmen and servants and worshipped god in dingy chapels no great men arose among them as among the puritans of england they were still evangelical in their creed but not earnest in defending it so persecution wiped them out was terribly successful eight hundred thousand of them perished in prisons and galleys or on scaffolds and there was no help henry the fourth when he gave toleration to the huguenots never dreamed that his successors would undo his work Had he foreseen that concession to the unchanged and unchangeable enemies of human freedom would have ended as it did, I believe his noble heart would have revolted from any peace until he could have reigned as a Protestant king. Oh, had he struggled a little longer for his crown! How different might have been the subsequent history of France, and even Europe itself! How much greater would have been his own fame! Even had he died as the defender of Protestant liberties, a greater glory than that of Gustavus would have been his forever! the immediate results of his abjuration were doubtless beneficial to himself to the huguenots and to his country expediency gives great rewards but expediency cannot control future events it is short-sighted and only for the time successful ask you for the ultimate results of the abjuration of henry the fourth i point to the demolition of la rochelle under richelieu and the systematic humiliation of the huguenots i point to the revocation of the edict of nantes by louis the fourteenth and the bitter and cruel and wholesale persecution which followed i point to the atrocities of the dragonades and the exile of the huguenots to england and america and holland i point to the extinction of civil and religious liberty in france to the restoration of the jesuits to the prevalence of religious indifference under the guise of roman catholicism until at last it threw off the mask and defied all authority, both human and divine, and invoked all the maddening passions of revolution itself. Authorities Histoire du les Stoli, Memoires de la Reine Marguerite, Histoire de Henri Le Grand par Madame de gelly, Memoires de Solis, d'Abegin, Mathien, Brantome's Vie de Charles the Ninth Henri Martin's History of France Mezrailles Perefice Sismondi end of section six